let's uh, stand. We might not get done today, but let's stand and we'll read through Second Kings four. Uh, not the whole chapter because I do want to. I'm going to say some of it for next uh, time for sure. But let's read the account of these two uh, women that we want to talk about today: the widow and her oil, and then the Shunammite uh, woman. And uh, so we'll read down through uh, verse 37. <clears throat> now the wife of the one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Of course, we knew that was kind of the, the way things were done back then. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few, for a lot, in other words. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all the vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. So it's uh, a private thing. He says, this is something that do behind closed doors. Um, so she went in and uh, poured the, she uh, verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. And she came and she told the man of God and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your son can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went to Shunem, Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her, her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi's servant, Call this Shumanite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to her, to him, <clears throat> See now to her, see you have taken all this trouble for us. Say now to her, see you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. And when the child had grown, he went on out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him in the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. And when she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may go to the man of God and come back again. He said, Why do you go to him today? 
It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, All is well. And then she saddled the donkey, and she went to her servant, and said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is a Shumanite. Run in at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, he, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I uh, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet them, him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay your staff on the face of the child. Then the mother child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on him on the face of the child, but there was no sign or sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elijah came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on the bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And when he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hand on his hands, and as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child began to warm. Then he got up again and walked back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shumanite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And he seated. So, very interesting uh, story uh, there, and we want to make some uh, comments about it today. Um, just remember last week we talked about the uh, four teams, three of whom were uh, trying to bring Moab back into the fold, as it were, who had rebelled, and of course it's the same old story with uh, Jehoshaphat uh, compromising with the wicked kings and working with them, and the Lord uh, having none of it in a sense, he he, he allows them, but there's always, uh, he, he uh, chides him for doing it, and it never really ends up well, and even last week, remember, it didn't really end too well with an awful display of this man killing, sacrificing his own son. But we saw that compromise always causes problems. It hurts our testimony, and it's never justified. There's never a good reason for us to compromise. And, and I'm not talking about compromising. we got two different opinions, and we have to work together or something like that. I'm talking about compromising with sin, with, with uh, the, the loss and so forth. We also saw that we filter everything through the Bible before making a decision. We don't use the Bible after the fact. That was Jehoshaphat's one of his problems. He would always uh, agree to do something with the evil kings, and then he would seek the Lord to see if, if it was a good thing to do or not. And then we, we went to Mo, at this king of Moab, and, and this is awful act of desperation, sacrificing his son. We reminded ourselves that saints never, may never come to the point of desperation since the Lord has guaranteed victory in all things. There's just, no matter how 
low things go in our life, and sometimes they go low. And, and you know, uh, sometimes things go you know beyond even to the death of a loved one, the death of your spouse. That that's a low point, but it can get worse in some cases. You know, it, it, things can really go bad. But for a Christian who has Romans eight, they're not twenty eight always there. You know. The promise that all things work together for good, that we know we have a glorious end, we have uh, rejoined heirs with Christ. We're never desperate. We can be low. We, we can be, be in, in severe trials. But we don't ever get desperate. We have to do something ungodly, something unbiblical, uh, because the joy and the peace of the Lord should always be our strength and always there. So, uh, this is to me a very a big contrast when we see a lost person doing something like that. We would never want to see ourselves in such a situation where we would do something that would be so dishonoring to the Lord. <clears throat> Alright, so as we come to the account of these two women, as we start these accounts, uh, <clears throat> these seemingly random miracles uh, that have been performed both by Elijah and Elisha, you always want to wonder, you know, why are they here? Is there anything uh, that we need to see? Obviously there's something or wouldn't be here. But these don't seem to have a whole lot of historical significance. You know, they're, they're not something that had to happen for Christ to come in. So you kind of left wondering, okay, why, you know, why is this here? <clears throat> they certainly teach us some, some things about God's grace and power, and that would certainly be enough. But we just are reminded of, of how gracious God is and, and what he can do. There's no limit to his power. There's some beautiful types and shadows in some of these. We think about uh, the Lord supplying all the oil that is needed. The Lord sustains us and gives us the, the grace and the strength that we need and so forth. Um, but we might wonder, well, how do they fit the overall context of the Bible? Um, do, how, do they in any way perhaps prepare us for the coming of Jesus in the, the first advent? You know, since he hadn't come yet the first time. And I think that, that we could say, yes, uh, they do add something to the mix of the Old Testament. We'll talk about that here as we go along. <clears throat> One thing that we see is that many of these things remind us of the miracles that Jesus did while on earth. So, so right there we have a, perhaps a reason because remember, uh, John was when the Old Testament says that the Messiah will not come until Elijah come first, and John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that. You say, well, why was he referred to as Elijah? Well, um, a couple of reasons, I think. First of all, he dressed like Elijah. But what was Elijah's ministry? Well, as, as we uh, tried to bring out, as we went through that, one of his big ministries was to... Uh, Prophesy against Israel to, that the end of the covenant had come. You guys, the broken covenant and the end is coming. And so you had this, uh, both these men, when it came to their public ministry, especially to the government, uh, to the kings, it was pretty much always in a condemning way. Privately, you dealt with private citizens, they always were very helpful and gracious. And you see that even in this, right? So, so you think about Elijah came to announce, in a sense, the end of the covenant, to announce condemnation. John the Baptist comes in a similar way. He's announcing the uh, the king has come and it's time to repent. So a very similar 
a ministry as Elijah. Of course, in, in neither case were they heard very well, but uh, John prepared the way for uh, the coming king. And again, the, the end of this first covenant and the beginning of the second, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so uh, it's interesting that it's as John the Baptist and Jesus come, in that similar role that their miracles, well, John really didn't do miracles, but Jesus' miracles looked a lot like Elijah's and Elisha's. And again, so there, there's that connection that that's, whatever was going on back there is now uh, being, is happening now as well, and they are to take that seriously. So, <clears throat> as we'll see here um, <clears throat> next week, with Elisha, uh, feeds a uh, hundred men with just a little. Uh, Jesus is going to come along and do that in a more, much more spectacular way a couple of times. And so there's a connection that Jesus must be the real deal because look, he's doing the very miracles we read about with Elijah and Elisha uh, only in a greater way. So there is that eschatological, that looking forward, I think, to a Christ uh, in as we study these two men in particular. <clears throat> and so they had better take Jesus seriously because he clearly exceeded these two in power and the, the, Jews, the Jews of Jesus' day should have, you know, and, and are responsible to put, connect those dots. Um, there's also something of a contrast between Jesus that's seen in, in the second account today where Elisha races up uh, this boy, uh, but he does, it takes it takes a while. And certainly, Gehazi couldn't do it, and then Elisha, he's got to do this three times. He's got to lay out on this boy and, and seek God's help, and it, it's a process. Whereas Jesus, when he raised him from the dead, it was immediate, right? And so there's the, the connection there, but Jesus is being revealed as much greater. We also see in both these Old Testament miracles and with Jesus' miracles that they weren't just magic tricks. That's one of the things you see in all the miracles of, uh, of the Bible. Uh, they, they, are, uh, they aren't just tricks to call attention to oneself um, or even just to convince them who they are, although certainly uh, that was part of the miracles that they, you know, they, that you took someone seriously when they were able to do that, right? But they taught spiritual lessons. Uh, there was a purpose in them. Uh, they always brought life and healing. They always brought provisions, as we see today. So they weren't just useless displays of power to tickle someone's fancy, to amaze. They taught about the the ministry of that person, especially as Jesus does it. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus' miracles were signs to prove who sent him. And, uh, and and they, they taught about what he was going to do. He, so he didn't just make a donkey disappear. He healed. He fed. And said, so, well, well, how did that teach about his ministry? Well, remember Luke 4, 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, there, he ta- he, not everybody he proclaimed good news to were poor, but certainly probably the majority, a lot of them were. He said he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, there might have been a few who he talked to who were in jail, who perhaps were slaves, but not, I would say not the majority by any stretch. 
Um, and he sent him to recover the side of the blind. Well, he, he did come across some blind people, a few, and he, he, he recovered their sight. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, I don't know if he ever did that. Uh, there was a lot of all of Israel was oppressed by Rome, right? In fact, they kept saying they expected him to uh, remove their oppressors, but he absolutely did not do that. And then to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when you start to look at this, while some of this was literally done. Uh, he did help people who were poor, uh, in a, in a, in a rare, in rare cases. Uh, he did do those things. Clearly it's spiritual. They're, they're miracles that, um, showed what he was doing. So when you heal someone's eyes, a blind eye, it was to demonstrate that he has come as the light of the world to give us light, to open up our blinded eyes by sin and Reveal the Savior to us and reveal the Lord to us, right? <clears throat> Those oppressed by sin to be uh, liberated from that oppression, right? Uh, those who are poor, who have nothing, who are needy, uh, who have no good works, Christ has come to give us the riches of his own, to make us join heirs with Christ. So the miracles had a purpose, in a teaching purpose, and they weren't just... Uh, really neat acts, that there was a purpose to them. <clears throat> and so when we read of similar miracles, we would uh, expect then that, that connection to be made. Because they, they're, they're showing gospel truths. Well, we can't help but see all these uh, miracles in chapter 4, right? Uh, <clears throat> many of these things that we're, we're, we've talked about. The first seven verses... Uh, if they are anything, they're a picture of grace as this a poor widow and her sons are dying and uh, the, the Lord gives her through Elisha, this miraculous event, the ability to have all she needs and then some. And to, to kind of make a living as she uh, was a widow at that point. <clears throat> so we can kind of identify with her opening words. You know, my, my husband's been faithful uh, all these years. And the Lord's taken them away, and now we are, uh, the creditors are coming to take my children away. And, you know, we, we can all kind of say that. And so, you know, all of a sudden disaster comes upon us and said, well, Lord, we, we've been faithful. I'm trying to do what you want me to do. And it seems like it's all falling apart. Well, what's going on? Our crops have been swept away in the flood. Our, our, uh, a child that we've been faithful to raise. That has been taken from us, as we're going to see in the next um, uh, account. And so this woman has been a faithful wife to a prophet, and the Lord takes him home and leaves her with no way to support herself. And she does the right thing, though. She comes to Elisha. So she's not cursing God and dying like Lot's wife did, as such, but she, but she needs help. So she cries out to Elijah, but she's crying out really to the Lord, of course, because she's taken where she should. She doesn't make suggestions. She just simply says uh, to the Lord, I need help. <clears throat> it's kind of what we saw several weeks ago with the Jehoshaphat. Uh, it says in Second Chronicles 20, And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Pierre 
whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. This is a Jehoshaphat praying for the God to deliver them from these these uh, entities, these, these nations, Moab and the other ones that we did not destroy when we came into the land. You told us not to. And now all of a sudden they're coming out against us. So Lord, I need your help. Verse 11, Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great Lord that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And uh, a great prayer, the Lord delivers him. And this is what the woman here, this widow, is uh, really praying uh, in her situation. <clears throat> And so there's a, a good contrast here, though, between this widow and uh, the king Jehoram of the last chapter. Remember that the north, the king, the wicked king of the north, he was a wicked idolater. Remember, Elisha says that if, if it wasn't the fact that Jehoshaphat was here, I wouldn't even pay attention to you. Now we have he's a king. Now we have a widow who's faithful, a believer, a, a child of God, no doubt, and she cries out, and the Lord immediately takes care of her. So. There's a, there's a contrast here that's, again, good for us to remember. God's people can expect God's compassion. He remembers that we're dust, right? Um, the, the lost, though, cannot. And, and so when the world questions why God allows disaster to happen or why me, they're just showing uh, why they deserve it to start with because they, they don't pay attention to God except whenever they need something. So the king, God hardly hears, this nameless widow God graciously provides for because we are children of God. We have those promises. The promises of the Bible are not for everybody. They're, they're for uh, his people, believers. Those are truly Christian. So, uh, kind of going back to what I said before, we, we don't have to do desperate things. <clears throat> and, uh, it's not a privilege that everyone can expect from the Lord. Only those who are in Christ Jesus. So as you read of this desperate widow, we can't help but identify with her. She has a debt hanging over her. She can't pay, right? So we kind of see ourselves in that. And the Lord uses insurmountable debt to illustrate our own salvation in his parables, remember? So it's so certainly a picture here of how the Lord graciously gives us what we cannot provide for ourselves in salvation. She begs and she receives. Uh, Jesus did the same thing when he fed the 5,000. He, he, he doesn't just plop food on her table. He gives her a means to take care of herself. And I think it's going to be good for us to remember too, just like with this 5,000, when he asks, what do you have? The answer comes back, I'm not enough to feed this 5,000. But in each case, he uses what they do have that they might live and serve the Lord. So the question is, I don't look at myself and say, you know what? The Lord did not give me what this person has. I don't have the talent. I don't have the money. I don't have the health or whatever. Because that's neither here nor there. But what the Lord has given me, I know he can use if I give it to him, if I use it for him. And we're seeing an example of that here. And that's, again, a very encouraging thing for us to remember. There, there, it's a sin to be jealous of people. 
And we know sometimes we struggle with that. You know, we have this problem. We can't seem to get rid of it. And you look over there, this person, they don't, they don't seem to have this, any kind of struggle. Or at least not what I'm going through. Well, okay, but that's the Lord giving you an opportunity to earn reward, an opportunity to serve Him faithfully. The, the, the reward is coming. It's there. Do we have faith to believe it or not? Right? That's what living by faith is. I believe the Word of God. It's, it's, living by faith is not saying, well, you know, Lord, I, 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 my car is broken, and I believe you can give me a new car. Right? Well, the Lord could give you a new car, but in my life, then it's not going to. Because the Bible doesn't say that the Lord's going to take care of you. The Lord says He will give you as you need it, as He, whatever, however He sees fit. And so that's what living by faith is. I, I know that if I have a need here, the Lord will fulfill it. But I'm not going to make demands. And remember, that woman does not tell Elisha what she wants. She just lays out the problem. I think that's, that's a good example of living by faith. <clears throat> Some say, well, you know, this is a good example of the debt we owe to the law. As lawbreakers, and that Christ has sufficiently paid the price for us. Uh, there's something to be said about that. There's certainly an illustration there. Because in Colossians 2.13, it says, In you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses, by counting the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. Well, if the law said, do this and live, and we did not do that, and so we are debtors to the law. We are guilty before the law. But this he set aside, you know, to the cross. He he fulfilled the law for us. And so there's certainly that, you know, an illustration of this uh, in, in the account. But I, I think more so it just is a good reminder of how the Lord gives us what, we, what he wants us to have. But, he, but it, doesn't, it doesn't come without responsibility. It doesn't come without work. This woman had to go out and borrow pots and fill them up. You know, and then she had to live off what was left over, so that required uh, some some measure of discipline and faith. And we're also reminded that many times it appears to us that there is no hope, but that God has already given us the means out of the limbo, we just haven't seen it yet. And that's, you know, so she's got the means, she's got the oil, uh, just the Lord hasn't explained to her how it's all going to work, but the Lord isn't taken by surprise. Um, and sometimes the things that we think are our enemies, the Lord works out for our good. Uh, I was reading about, back in the uh, early 1900s, the bow weevil, which had come up out of South America, and uh, was decimating the cotton fields of the South and uh, causing all sorts of problems. It was really something that lasted, up with, I think it wasn't until about 1950 or so, before I finally started to get a uh, handle on this. But in uh, southeast uh, Alabama, I think it was in, in a town called Enterprise, uh, they began to, well, in that area anyway, the, 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 it was, the cotton crops that they kind of relied on, that was the economy of the south, uh, you know, back in the 1800s. And uh, they began to realize they've got a problem. Uh, we're going to be in, you know, we're going to be uh, out of any kind of income. And so they started to look for other means 
the crops and the ways to make money, and their economy did well. And they actually put out a plaque, if you can actually look it up, it's there, um, celebrating, as it were, the bow weevil, because it led them to look for other ways to make an income and didn't rely only on cotton. And so, you might say to yourself, I, I have next to nothing to serve the Lord, but that's exactly where the Lord wants us. He wants us where we don't have much so that what we can do, uh, the Lord gets the glory for it. It's how he displays his power, right? What's interesting is it not that this was done behind closed doors. Uh, most were done openly, but he kind of seems to tell her, don't tell anybody. Go in, close the doors, and do this. And kind of leaves it at that, which is a little interesting. It's, it's rare. And of course, we're all, as we look at these, we always see that the Lord never really does anything the same. It might be similar, but he always changes it up. So we never, we can't ever assume that we know exactly how the Lord's going to work. But someone suggested that there are times when the Lord blesses us that it might be best not to.
Thank you. 